Hello and welcome to the Harvard EdCast, a series of conversations with thought leaders in the field of education from across the country and around the world. I'm your host, Matt Weber, and today we're going to do the academic equivalent of what we ask rock stars to do at concerts, and that's play their hits. Our guest is certainly an academic rock star, and like Madonna and Bono and Cher, he is recognized by just one name, Howard. He's the Hobbes Professor of Cognition and Education. Welcome to the EdCast, Professor Howard Gardner. Thanks, Matt. Uh, I, I'll try to live up or down to that introduction. <laughs> I figured you not normally introduced with Cher and Bono in the titles. Uh, Professor Gardner, this past January, your life's work was on stage during a very unprecedented lecture series. Can you just tell us about the origins of how this actually happened? Sure. It was the concurrence of a number of different things. I'm heading toward the biblical age of 70, and that's a time when one does look back at one's um, life, including one's thoughts and one's writing. Second of all, there was the um, emergence of J-term, and in J-term is a chance for the school to do things which would have been more difficult to do before, and people involved with J-term said, you know, there are often students who come to the ed school and want to take a course with you or want to be exposed to you, but for some reason they haven't uh, signed up, and this would be a chance for you to give them we didn't say they're your, your greatest hits, but I think that was the idea. And the, the lecture series was opened up to a broader community, so there were friends who came, and my wife sat through them all, and there were other students from other institutions, including some nice connections I made. So it was, a, it was targeted to the ed school community, but it was broader than that. Um, and the other thing, I have a longtime friend and colleague, Bob DeNazi, who has done videos of my lectures over the years, and he was very interested in having what he might call a, a culminating set of, of lectures recorded about the development of my ideas. And so uh, the school was good enough to basically uh, give Bob and his crew control over Asquith for a week uh, so that they could get the lights and the sounds correct. And uh, um, audience members were told that uh, they had better watch in another room if they didn't want to be featured. Uh, Reality I, stars. Right. Uh, so it was a confluence of those things. And um, while I kind of knew approximately what I was going to say, uh, we worked hard on in getting the lectures in good shape and uh, updated a lot of the v images which I've used in the past. And it was an, uh, a chance for me to say, well, I wrote this in 1980 or 1990. How do I think about it today? Sure. And when, I, when I turn 100, we're going to do it again. Well, okay. <laughs> when, you, um, when you talk about these greatest hits, this criterion collection of, of Professor Gardner's greatest works, uh, the things that come to mind, and you dedicated three, three topics uh, to three different issues. And the first one, uh, multiple intelligences. To, to those in our audience who are listening, who are maybe more intrigued uh, if they get a little taste of what, what MI is, uh, really brief, under a minute, if possible, what would you, what's one way to explain multiple intelligences, and then how can they obviously learn more about it? Well, I've gotten pretty good at this. The standard view of intelligence is we have one central computer, and if it works well, we're smart in everything. If it works average, we're average in everything. And if it works slowly and sluggishly, too bad. Um, MI theory, which has been put forth now 30 years ago, says that we have a bunch of computers in our mind. One responds to language, another to music, a third to other, other people. 
there's somewhere between eight and 10 of those computers. And the fact that you're good, say, with your spatial computer tells us nothing at all whether you'd also be good with um, your computer, which deals with musical uh, sounds and, and patterns. So that's the, that's the idea of MI theory. It's always had a rocky niche within psychology, less so in biology, where people find it rather fits in with what we know about the brain, and it's had a lot of um, taken education, and that I could not have known when I originally wrote about these ideas three decades ago. So the first day was multiple intelligence. The second day you devoted to uh, disciplinary understanding. What is that? We, we, go to, we, we send our kids to school in part to get them off the street, in part so that we can go to work, um, in part so they learn to deal with other um, peers. But once the literacies have been uh, consolidated, and uh, hopefully that will happen in the first few years, though it, it often doesn't, then the question is why continue to go to school? And I concluded many years ago that we need to go to school to have a disciplined mind. And the disciplined mind means, number one, mastering the ways that people have developed over the centuries of thinking well about the world. Thinking well means how do you think historically, how do you think mathematically, how do you think artistically, how do you think scientifically. Um, and discipline also means becoming expert enough in something that uh, you can expect to have a job, and if you keep up, you can expect, at least until now, to be ahead of the computers and so on. So that's what a disciplined mind is. What I hadn't thought about, because it really wasn't that much on the radar screen when I wrote about this 20 years ago, was interdisciplinary thought. What does it mean to work on the boundaries or across disciplines, which is now understood to be central for dealing with any kind of a complex problem? Nor had I raised the question, because again, it wasn't on most people's minds, how do you um, master disciplinary and interdisciplinary thinking in a digital era, where you know you have Saul Khan on the, uh, available to everybody, you have now the emergence of um, MOOCs, um, you know, the, these massive courses, which you can get for free or for very little money. Can you master disciplinary thinking that way? Or does it have to be done closer up with people who are actually doing this every day, chances to interact with them? Um, one of my favorite quotations from Michael Polanyi, uh, who wrote this 60 years ago, is you could read about science for your whole life in India and that wouldn't replace three weeks in a scientific lab. And disciplinary thinking, you learn in science by doing science and not by reading about it. So that was the, that was the thrust of the second lecture. And day two also had the phrase truthiness in Twitter, correct? <laughs> <laughs> I love your alliteration, Professor Gardner. And day three, five minds of the future. What are these minds and are we now in the future? <laughs> this is the most recent published work of mine. It was, it was written in the middle of the first decade, um, but also it, it too has been shocked, not just by the digital media, but also, as you were um, joking, by um, postmodernism, which uh, challenges a lot of our ideas about what's true and what we should learn, how we should learn it, and by truthiness, which is an allusion to the fact that people post everything that they think of nowadays, and it's really quite difficult to figure out um, you know, what's reliable in the internet and what's just somebody uh, you know, blowing off steam. Anyway, so you ask me what the five minds are. The first three are cognitive. The last two have to do with human relations. I've already mentioned the first one, the disciplined mind. And 
when I talk about the five minds, I'm actually talking about how does one learn to think historically, scientifically, aesthetically, and so on. The second one, which uh, I've come to believe is probably the most important one in the 21st century, is the synthesizing mind. We're all deluged by information, and the challenge is how do you put it together so you can hold on to it, otherwise it's useless, and unless you're a hermit, how do you pass that on to other people? And of course, most people involved with education are teachers who want to share our synthesizing results and who want our students to learn how to synthesize, so that's the second mind. The third one is the creating mind, what we now call thinking outside the box, but as I point out in the lecture, you can't think outside the box unless you have a box. And the box are the disciplines you've mastered and the synthesizing that's already been done by other people. The last two minds are the ones that I've worked on in the last 15 or 20 years with my colleagues, and that's the respectful mind and the ethical mind. The respectful mind is rather easy to describe, though that doesn't mean it's easy to achieve, and that is recognizing that people in the world often look different from one another, come from different backgrounds, think differently, but we shouldn't shoot them better to tolerate them, but it's even better to try to understand them. And respectful means trying to reach out and put yourself in the skin or the boots of people who don't just come from the neighborhood. Um, the ethical mind is more complex, and it's not something that we can really think about until young people have reached adolescence. But the ethical mind has to do with the responsibilities as well as the rights which we have as workers and as we, which we have as citizens. Nobody in America and probably few people elsewhere have any difficulty saying, what's my right as a worker? What's my right as a citizen? But the ethical mind thinks a lot about what do we owe to others and what do we owe to the broader society if we're lucky enough to have an education, if we're lucky enough to live in a democracy where we have some uh, chance to speak up and to vote and so on. And yeah, I often end my lectures by quoting Ralph Waldo Emerson, who, who said that character is more important than intellect. And I've spent my life studying intelligence. I have no apology for that. It's a fascinating topic, and I've contributed to pluralizing the notion of intelligence. But at the end of the day, we don't need people who are smarter. We need people who try to do the right thing, and that's what character is all about. And while I'm not out of sympathy with some of the things that our national and international leaders call for when they call for uh, core knowledge and for focusing on STEM subjects. If at the end of the day, we don't have people who care about doing the right thing and actually try to do it, all the IQ points or all the MI points don't get you anywhere. So I, therefore I end that, set, that third lecture and I end the, the set of lectures by saying, fundamentally in education, we have to have put character central and the work I've been doing, part of the Good Work Project, as we call it, or the Good Project, is to put character centrally on the radar screen. Now you're going to ask me, Matt, if people want to know more about the lectures, what should wow. I do? You're, fl you're flipping the room right here. <laughs> well, uh, actually, I was, Howard. I was going to say, now that we've whet your appetite, where can people see more than 10 minutes of Professor Gardner talking about these three sort yeah, of unprecedented yeah. historic lecture topics? So we've actually invented something new called the blended interview with the flipped interview. Yes, we have. So do you want me to answer on behalf of yourself? Sure. Uh, sure. You can go to Howard, howardgardner.com. That's H-O-W-A-R-D, Gardner, G-A-R-D-N-E-R.com. And if you scroll down to the bottom, it's the DVD um, series talk. You click on that, and you can order all three DVDs and have it shipped right to your home and watch them at home and have Howard be with you, not just in audio, but in video as well. Professor Gardner, any more questions for me? No, that's, uh, I like the flipped idea. And of course, 
I mean, there's more serious point is we need to rethink a lot of education nowadays because of the incredible um, options opened by the internet. But we also need to ask what sorts of things are best accomplished residentially, and that's a question that all of Harvard, including the Ed School, is thinking a lot about. That's definitely true. And, and Professor Gardner, just you know, if you don't mind, if I flip it right back, is that's and, and feel free to not answer this and flip it back again. Um, We've learned so much about you, and, and, and back to this whole greatest hits model. When you go to a Paul McCartney concert, you ask him to play Hey Jude, and he plays it, and he plays it ad infinitum for as long as he does. Do you grow tired of talking about these things? You know, I've heard you talk about this many, many times, just in two years. You've been talking about it for way more than two years. Um, does it grow? Does it evolve? Does it change? Obviously, you're finding modern Percept modern connections to it. Your recent op-ed about the Harvard email scandal. All your work seems to always apply today, but do you grow tired of talking about it? If I never had to talk about multiple intelligences again, I wouldn't, I wouldn't shed any tears. Uh, in <laughs> You're fact, making me feel bad as an interviewer. <laughs> in fact, I should mention that next year, um, I'm hoping to do three lectures, one on creators, one on leaders, and one on saints and sinners. And it's much more exciting for me to give three new lectures than to give the oldies and goodies. That said, I always read the newspaper, and I always try to bring in more recent knowledge. And even when people um, write to me ahead of time and say, would you send my, your lecture? I say, well, I'll send you an old version of it, but I won't know till the night before exactly what I'm going to say. And even though I'm very glad I didn't ever became a performer. I was a serious musician as a young person, and it's possible that I would have become a, you know, a pianist or a conductor, and I don't think I would have enjoyed playing the same pieces all the time. I think the very best performers treat every evening as a new occasion, because otherwise they would go nuts. Ah, very good way of putting it. And my one of my questions was, as a former uh, piano player, what is your, you still play, what, or maybe, maybe you don't play anymore, but when you played, what was your favorite piece to play? Well, the answer is that I only play for myself okay. and for people who are deaf <laughs> because I don't play well anymore. So if I pull the keyboard out right now, which... No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, yeah, my, my favorite composer is Mozart, but it's a little bit like the, your question about uh, lectures. When I play, I tend to pick a new piece out because it's more interesting to play a piece by Schumann or Brahms or uh, Rachmaninoff or even Stravinsky I haven't played before. And when I play the same piece over and over again, I get bored with it. Um, and last question, Professor Gunner. Thanks again. I know time is precious. Uh, you're being very, uh, pun intended, good to us. Um, you are known as one of the greatest thinkers. Uh, uh, MacArthur Awards and Asturias Awards have validated all this in addition to all of your works and your books. Um, a thinker, uh, Professor Gunner, where do you think best? And this is, I know you have your Rothko chapels and you have your Grand Canyons. Where, where would you go for inspiration to think best? Maybe that's a question you haven't gotten in a while. No, um, I have to give an honest answer here. Um, environment is much less important to me than it is to most people. Um, I've realized that from a very early age, I lived primarily in my head. Uh, I've often wondered whether I was bullied when I was young, and the answer is, I pr if I was, I probably didn't notice it. Um, so while I like to travel and I like to you know, go to a cafe and take notes, 
Um, maybe a, a more honest answer to your question is people say to me, what do you most like to do when you, know, you have a free evening and something's been canceled? And even though it's a little bit embarrassing to say, I like to just lie in my bed or on a couch and think about things. And uh, as long as there isn't, as long as the people in the next room aren't too loud, um, that that's that's what I that's what I like to do. But I'm lucky; I, I get to travel a lot, so I might have more of a hunger for, you know, you might say catalytic catalytic environments if I was stuck in the same garret all all the time. But I'm not somebody who needs the mountains or who needs the sea ocean. You know, it, I'm I'm somebody who just needs a little quiet and. Uh, something to think about. And we are lucky that you do think and think so well. You've bettered our society. Uh, before I close, any last questions for me, Professor? No, but uh, I do think, Matt, now that you've been here for two years, we do need to get some people interviewing you because you've learned a lot. <laughs> uh, but you have to keep all the top secret stuff private. Endorsed by Howard Gardner. I'll take it. HowardGardner.com if you want to hear more about his speaker series. Always a pleasure chatting with you. Thanks, Matt. This Likewise. has been the Harvard EdCast, a production of the Harvard Graduate School of Education. I'm your host, Matt Weber. Thank you kindly for listening. The Harvard Graduate School of Education, working at the nexus of practice, policy, and research.